When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Ace Von Johnson from LA Guns, Neon Cub, and Faster Quickie Cat. And you're listening to The Hook Rock, the ultimate rock community podcast, the place I come to listen to rock and roll talk. everybody it's jay scott this is the hook rocks the ultimate rock community podcast hope you're doing well hope you're staying safe staying healthy i repeat myself every episode but it is the truth i hope everyone's doing well we've got a lot going on numbers are spiking for covid all over the place i think 80 percent of the states are seeing increases we're getting record number cases every day it um it's rough out there it is rough so you know, I'm not going to sugarcoat anything or let's hopefully we can get through this together and uh, move forward. And of course, we've got the election coming up next week, which should bring some sunshine and brightness to everyone's day. I kid you on that. But uh, hopefully we can get through that in one piece. But November is just cracking up to be a, a great month. We've got so much to look forward to in November. And I kid you again. I'd like to welcome in our next guest. You know him on social media as at Rock These Tweets from My Rock and Roll Heaven, Mr. Chris Preston. How you doing, man? What's going on? Hey, Jay. I'm great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Looking forward to talking rock with you for the next little while. Uh, big fan of your podcast, so I was really excited when you reached out to uh, ask me to be on to talk music. Yeah, man, I appreciate things it. Things are well. What's yeah, that? Yeah, no problem. Things, things are, just to say how, how things are going up here, things are going well up here. Like you, as you mentioned, we're living through the COVID life, and uh, I found good refuge in uh, you know talking as much music I can with people and listening to music, listening to various podcasts, and broadening my horizons that way. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, no, it has been a refuge, as you say, for not only the listeners who enjoy listening to the podcast, but also ourselves, right? Because you, you know, have your show, and then I, you know, I do mine a few times a week, and to escape life, forget about life for about an hour or so, has been very therapeutic for myself, um, just to kind of, you know, forget about the stresses of each day, because... You know, the longer this goes on, people are having mental health issues and they're struggling with just staying indoors and doing the same thing, especially, you know, our our younger fans and younger people. You know, I mean, for a young person to not experience life and have fun 
and worry about the seriousness of this pandemic. That's a lot to take on for a young person. And I just hope that they're able to get through this and remain intact and move forward with whatever normal is when this is over. Yeah, perhaps our, our new normal, I guess, is what we have to look forward to. Yeah. <laughs> and with music and shows, God knows what that new normal will look like. I'm hopeful as a as a avid music buff and concert goer. I go at I go to a ton of shows every year. And uh one thing I found with missing going to shows is that I've definitely delved into more podcasts, like I mentioned, and listening to more music and also listening to we'll probably get into it a bit. I know you've talked about another podcast podcast. Um, episodes that you've done is listening to new rock music. So that's one, I guess, benefit I sh- should say, or shall I say about COVID is that there's been more time to take in more of that stuff. So <laughs> on the bright side, right? That's uh, one thing that's uh, come out of this for me anyways. And that's such a positive thing too. You have a lot of time to catch up on things and to take advantage of the moment that you have to dive into new music. I mean, how many times have we heard over the years that new music sucks and new music is this and new music is that? I can promise you that it's not. I've said it before. I'm almost like a broken record here. But if you are <laughs> listening to this podcast and you're interested in the topic that we're going to talk about, which is about a former period of music, I want to tell you that I post a lot of new music on my Twitter feed, And I hope that you're listening to it. I hope that you're diving into some of these new bands. It's such a great moment to take advantage of when you have the time to listen to this music because new music is coming. And actually, it's here. It is here, and there's more coming, and it's time you take notice. Stop being the cranky classic rock fan that only listens (laughs) to the same 50 songs or the same five bands. Expand your horizons a little bit. And you'll thank me later. I promise you. Well said. I completely agree with you. And as that former cranky, <laughs> am I an old man now? Oh, geez. As a former cranky man anyways, that was in that camp of, oh, rock is dead and classic rock. Where did it go? And there's nothing good anymore. You know, that's certainly something I've come to realize over the last uh, couple of years that, no, it's not dead. It maybe needs some new exposure and a new, you know, I don't know, some some new way of getting people to listen to it, but it's it's certainly out there, like you said. So, Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many people, great people out there promoting new music. Uh, you can find them on my Twitter feed. You could probably see Chris retweeting them as well. So take advantage of that and listen, because rock and roll needs you more than ever, needs its fans. And even though the important demographic, or you and I are both not in the important demographic anymore. Right. There's a isn't lot that, of, isn't that depressing? It is oh, depressing. Man. It is. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I, I'm, I'm watching shows now that have like, you know, outdoor, like uh, those patio rooms or whatever, like, you know, so the block, the sun, I'm like, this is where I'm at in my life. I'm watching television <laughs> yeah. with older people, commercials that, that, you know, like uh, man diapers and stuff like that. I'm not. I'm not at that point yet. I'm not at that point. But the fact that you know they know that I'm watching and advertising that stuff to me makes me worry. So I know me too. <laughs> it's crazy. But like I said, you know, it's almost like rooting for a sports team. You know, whether you're a hockey fan, a baseball fan, a football fan, a fan of a, a particular team, 
when players move on and retire, get traded, sign somewhere else as a free agent, new players come in, you're still a fan of that team. And if you're a fan of rock, you're a fan of a great team, and there's new music coming that's replacing the classic rock that as we grow older, those bands are going to be touring less and less and making new music. So you have to find something to listen to. So go ahead and do it. Circling back now with Chris, we always ask the same first question every time we have a new guest, and that is the essence of the show. Just like every rock song has a hook that pulls you in, every rock fan has a moment, whether it's a song, an album, a band, or performance, that hook you on rock and roll. What was it for you, Chris? Well, I knew that question was coming, having listened to many of your shows, and uh, I've been kind of prepping myself as to how I would answer it. And I have to, I have to say that the answer came immediately to my mind right away. Uh, so give you a little background about me. I grew up in a very musical family uh, in the seventies. I'm an eighties ch- child of the eighties. My dad is a, uh, actually a classically trained concert pianist uh, who is an engineer, but <laughs> uh, loves music and classical music. So I had a a lot of classical music as a child in the house. And my mother uh, was a singer and she had a love of a lot of, um, you know, the folk music, 60s, Beatles, Bob Dylan. uh, There was John Denver in our house, all kinds of stuff. So I grew up with lots of different musical influences. And when I started to, as soon as you asked me that question, I was like, oh, you know what? My first memories of rock and roll were in the late 70s, and the band was Super Tramp. My dad had the 8-track, and I've even got a picture of him somewhere as a kid with his giant headphones on listening to Breakfast in America, which to me was like the only thing that existed at that time. It took me away from the John Denver and the Beethoven that I was listening to and found this really interesting sound of, you know, you've got the, the voice of Roger Hodgson and the keyboard and the saxophone. Uh, so I, I was like, that's my first kind of memory of, you know, what was my first musical rock memory in my experience? But to answer your question, what hooked me as a rock fan and realized that, man, this is the music I love and I'm going to be a fan of for the rest of my life was a specific song and it was survivors eye of the tiger so that song i remember hearing for the first time i was 10 just going on 11 and my cousins that we used to visit in the summer uh, in montreal were a bit older than me always played music and we were in a car one night driving somewhere and they played that song and that opening guitar right of eye of the tiger came on i was like god what is this you know, and then it kicks in, and Dave Bickler's voice, uh, just immediately, I was, like, transported to this new world of, like, oh, my gosh, this is, like, the best thing I've ever heard. So, funnily enough, that song became, like, the only song I ever played <laughs> for many months, drove my parents nuts. That led me into also getting my first records. So, I begged and begged my mom and dad to let me join Columbia house, which this is really going to date me. <laughs> um, there was a time 
boys and girls where you used to be able to order 13 records or cassettes for a penny and they'd ship them to your door. Uh, and so Eye of the Tiger by Survivor was one of the first 13 selections that I ordered. And those were my first records that I bought with my own. Well, in that case, it was a penny. Um, and I still have that copy of Survivor, Eye of the Tiger. It is beat up to heck, but I have it in my collection. I still pull it out from time to time and put it on side one. And I listen to Eye of the Tiger as it was back in the day when I first played it. with a lot more hisses and pops with the record scratch now that it is. But I still go back to that song, you know, probably a few times a year at least. And I'm in the mood to crank something up that'll make me feel like, you know, I need a lift. That's what I put on. So that's the song that did it for me and led me to the path of being a rock fan. That's so interesting because that song was so huge because it had the whole Rocky three element to it. And it was just, it was so part of that time in terms of growing up and hearing that. I mean, every kid knew that song. Everybody knew eye of the tiger because Rocky, you know, was this iconic figure and everybody, you know, saw Rocky one and Rocky two. And, you know, it's about the little guy, the underdog overcoming the odds and being this champion, and then you've got, you know, the third installment of that series with Rocky Three with Mr. T, which is an iconic pop, pop culture figure as well. And, of course, the song Eye of the Tiger just carried into that movie and just became this gigantic, enormous hit. Plus, they're from Chicago. So, yeah. you know, I mean, that was also something, too, as well, that we were, as growing up, we were inundated with Survivor songs. <laughs> I guess you would, yeah. The interesting thing is too, Jay, that that's so I hadn't I didn't see the movie, the, the Rocky Three movie until oh much later than uh, the, you know, I'd, I'd heard the song well before seeing the movie. So I, I at the time I actually became hooked on the song. I didn't even really know that it was in the movie. And I didn't find out till many years later. Um, and actually, watching the movie multiple times, I realized, and watching interviews with uh, with Frankie Sullivan, etc., that the version of the song in the movie is actually different than the song that was on the album because the "Eye of the Tiger" in the movie is the actual demo that they did for Stallone, and then they re-recorded it for the album. So a, a few years, many years, well few years later anyways i was listening i was like why does that sound so different well now that i'm watching the movie and that opening sequence you know when this tire comes on and you can really hear the differences but uh yeah it's it's one of those songs that as you said is tied into so much of that era of the 80s and pop culture and i think it's still one of the most iconic rock songs of all time um but it remains uh for sure a top 10 favorite for me it absolutely is. I mean, when you think of anthems, you may disregard it upon an initial list, but the more you think about it, that song is a gigantic anthem for that time. And and now, I mean, it's played at sporting events. It is played in kids' locker rooms to get them pumped up for whatever sport they're playing or the phrase even itself, the eye of the tiger. I mean, how many times have parents across the globe 
you know, especially oh, in, in you know in North America, have said to their kid, "Hey, man, I the tiger, I the tiger." I mean, you hear it at baseball games and football games and basketball. You hear it all the time, and yep. it's not. I always appreciate those songs that are transcendent. And I, you know, I spoke about Van Halen and the Eddie Van Halen tribute that I did about how Van Halen was bigger than music because they were part of pop culture. They were in movies. They were talked about in movies. And when you think about Eye of the Tiger, and you think about the phrase and the song and the movie, it is transcendent. It's become, you know, a part of our lives, our daily lives. When we talk, when we talk to our kids who are competitive or in competitive atmospheres, it's really interesting when it's when a song kind of jumps over their their medium into something else, into pop culture, into society. Yeah, it's one of those songs too that when I remember sitting down at that very young age, and you know, back in the day, we didn't have the internet to Google and look up lyrics for songs, and at that time when I first heard it, I didn't know the words. I didn't have the album. So there was no liner notes that I could read lyrics from. So I actually remember sitting down and, you know, on my, I'd tape it from the radio, <laughs> then write out. That's the first song I ever sat down and wrote the lyrics out so I could sing along to it. I'm sure I missed a few words here and there back then, but the, the lyrics really speak to, as you said, you know, that rising up and, you know, becoming a champion and beating the odds and having that eye of the tiger. And as a 10, 11 year old, you know, that's just epic to have those, those words being sung and especially then singing along to it. So absolutely. It's a iconic transcendent song for sure. And you mentioned Columbia house, which really ties into the decade (laughs) we are going to talk about because that was so prevalent with everybody being introduced to music, to rock music at that age. I don't know if Columbia House or those things kind of existed in the 70s, late 70s or, or whatnot. I don't know if they were getting, you know, albums. They did, for, actually, yeah. They did? Okay. I wasn't yeah. sure about that. I did not know. I, I don't think it was as big as it became like it did in the 80s when you're ordering cassettes Correct. or you're ordering CDs. Um, but it, it did really have an impact on music. Because you were well, able, how I built my collection too, right? Right, right. I mean, people were, would buy or you know send the penny. You'd you tape the penny <laughs> to the order form or whatever, yeah. you know, and then you'd send your list. You'd, you'd have like the code number again, you know, for mm-hmm. for the CD, and and you you know you checked it so you wouldn't make a mistake. And what three to six weeks later, you'd get your albums. There was also. Didn't RCA also have something similar to Columbia House, too, as well? There was. You're right. There was RCA and there was BMG, which we didn't have yes. in Canada until later. It was just Columbia House, but the, there was many of them. But I remember, and I don't know if you did this, too, but those days in the 80s when the Saturday paper would come and the Columbia House insert would be in there. Yes. And I would spend, like, I don't know how much time going through and, like, circling the ones I wanted and then redoing it and then like, Oh wait, no, but I, I want that to be my 13th. And then trying to trying to narrow it. Like it became a, a huge undertaking to figure out which those 13 were going to be. Right. Right. Which was part of the fun. But then my shock was too, as a 10 year old was discovering that, Oh, I also had to pay for shipping and handling. <laughs> so it was like the one cent became, I think it was like a dollar 85, <laughs> but yeah. it, it was just a, it was just such a time to obviously, grow up and 
and experience music that way. And like I said, that is how I started building my music collection was, and you know, as I became a teenager in the eighties, Columbia house also had my cat signed up, my dog, you know, <laughs> you were sending music to your grandparents' house, you know, <laughs> you, you nailed it. Exactly. It was so exciting after you got your initial, you know, set of CDs or cassettes they would send you that magazine that you're talking about. And then you would go through yeah. that, like you'd said, and you would say, Oh, they got this. I want to get this. This is, this is available. And then there became, you know, your friends, everybody had that one friend that was like the music elitist, right? Oh, this yep. is, this is a Columbia house CD. This is not from Atlantic records. And you'd be <laughs> like, does it matter? Oh, it matters. You know, you're, you're only a real fan if you get the original version. You're like, fuck off. You know, it's like. It's so know, true. It's, it's so, so right. You know, there's always that one guy in the neighborhood that, you know, they typically had a jerk face, you know, resting jerk face. And they would always just, you know, <laughs> make you feel so small with like, you know, your your music introduction, if you will, on what music you were buying. It was never like the proper way to buy music. And it was like, Hey man, I'm just a, you know, 11, 12 year old kid struggling with to make ends meet here. you know, And, and I need my, I need yeah, my music. My, my, yeah. My paper route money only goes so far. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, the, I mean, I had a paper route too. My, most of my money all went to music. I remember like, yes, you know, like when I and, and trading cards, Trading cards, yeah, like baseball cards and whatnot. I baseball spend, cards, yeah. yeah. And but but music, uh, myself and a bunch of my friends would get on our bikes, and we would cruise to the neighborhood record store because back then everybody had a neighborhood record store. Mine was called Big Apple Records, and we'd thump through. We'd spend hours, you know, on a Saturday afternoon, just hanging out there. Our parents knew where we were; they didn't care that we had to cross four busy streets to get there. <laughs> And we were just checking out music. It was a great time. It was it was a very simple time. And, you know, when we think back to 80s rock, which is what we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about the great decade of 80s music and what killed it. Because I get a lot of different opinions on my Twitter feed and on social media. A lot of people are against grunge because they they feel that they killed, you know, 80s rock. Some people think it's, you know, Metallica and the thrash movement. Other people feel like myself that 80s rock killed 80s rock. When you look back at the end of that era in the early 90s, um, after the 80s, you know, it became very cookie cutter. But we're going to dive into that subject because it's such a interesting topic and a lot of people have different opinions and a lot of people grew up listening to that music. And I always categorize the 80s into three different eras. There's the early 80s, which was very raw and very, you know, presentation was, you know, not what it became. It was a lot different. And then you have the mid-80s, which was the rise of the glam scene, and you had the rise of the popularity with MTV, and then the late 80s, it just blew up with albums like Appetite for Destruction, Hysteria, all those great albums, and then it became kind of like a, a, a cartoon. It became almost like bands were getting signed based on how they looked rather than how they played. 
And I think yeah. that's, well, I always felt the that the eight, yeah, the eighties became a parody of itself. Correct. And that genre specifically. Yeah. And I think that's why it took so long for people to have a different opinion about it because when the eighties ended and of course there were a few years in the early nineties, I think up until 92, maybe 93, but by 93 you had bands like Nirvana and you had bands like Pearl Jam that were really taking over and it was a complete opposite. It was at the other end of the spectrum when it became to, you know, when it came to presentation of the music, it was very anti-rock star. And as a result of that, for at least two decades, Anything that resembled 80s rock or when you talked about bands in the 80s, it would turn into a laugh fest. You know, oh, can't believe we listened to these bands or these bands. Oh, they were crap. They were not crap. They were not. They were they were very good bands. In fact, they probably knew their instruments better than what came after in terms of the grunge era. At least that's my opinion. I would agree with you. Yeah, these guys are talented. And the fact that so many people, as you said, there's this almost, they, they put a stigma on the bands of that era that, you know, they became, they're, as you said, they're a laughing stock, right? And it's taken a very long time, it seems, for us to have moved past that, which I think we have. And a lot, well, it's it's pretty obvious. There's a lot of those bands from that era, the late '80s, the early '90s. Uh, you know, the the hard rock metal, hair metal, if you call it. I hate that term, but glam metal that are back out there now, and they're out there for a reason. Because number one, they love music. Number two, they're fantastic musicians. You know, and number three, there's an audience for this. So um, I think it's a shame that we did go through that long period of you know where if you had anything to do with any band from that era, you were an outcast, <laughs> including the bands themselves. There's t- watched so many great interviews with like, you know, the guys from rat, for example, who, you know, they fell out of favor and all went into other businesses. Like Bobby Blotzer, I think was like, he was servicing vending machines. If I remember an interview I saw with him, like that's how bad it got for a lot of these guys, which is just crazy considering the amount of money, fame, and talent and followers they had, right? Yeah, I mean, I was talking to Brian Forsyth from Kicks a few months back, and it was only up until probably with the last half dozen years where he's able to become a full-time musician, musician again and not have to right. rely on other employment to, you know, to, to feed himself and put a roof over his head. And, I, you know, I think about a lot of those bands. I mean, I, I had an interesting... Um, or I read an interesting interview with Butch Walker, who's a huge producer now and was in a band called South Gang, which was in the 90s. And he reflects on that time as the reason why he's able to be the producer he is. And he produces everyone from Pink to Keith Urban to Harry Connick to whomever. He, I think he did the last Green Day album. But he's able to do that because he didn't have the name that some of these guys had, right? He wasn't named, right. you know, Mark Slaughter or Tom Kiefer or, and it took Tom Kiefer a long time to really get his solo um, stuff on track too. But he was able to kind of leave that scene anonymously where he didn't get a lot of pushback with what he was doing because 
you know, when you got into 91, 92, and even in 93, a lot of those bands, especially, are forgotten. You know, like, you can remember the names of the bands from 80 to 90, but typically after that, you know, whether it's bands like Hurricane Alice or XYZ or, geez, um, Jet Boy or whatever, yeah. a lot of those bands are, are pretty much off people's radar. South Gang, exactly. I mean, your hardcore fans will know that stuff, but, you know, when you're, when you're talking about the struggles, like I just mentioned, of guys in Cinderella or guys in Great White or whomever it was, they struggled not because they couldn't play or they couldn't sing. They struggled because, God forbid, someone went and saw a glam band from the 80s. And, I, you know, I, and I'm with you. I don't like the term hair band because I think that really diminishes the accomplishments and the musicianship that all those bands or 90% of those bands had. Yeah. The hair metal term is one that I've, (laughs) I've struggled to come to terms with over the years, just because of the fact, as you said, that it really kind of does have a certain connotation of all of the, it's unfair to lump all of those bands into one group of like, they were all about the look and the hair. And certainly there was that, you know, especially at the end of the 80s into the early 90s, where it seemed like, you know, the Sunset Strip scene had blown up and every label was looking for the next Motley Crue, right? Um, and would sign, there was, you know, third rate, fourth rate, fifth rate bands that got signed purely on the fact that they were looking like the next Poison or the next Motley Crue and there was a buck to be made. So unfortunately, you know, that hair metal term gets used and is a little bit, I think, far too encompassing of what it's trying to get across. I think glam is certainly much more of a, a term to be used to describe the whole genre. And yeah, I guess you could call some bands strictly hair bands, like you mentioned some of the Jet Boys, et cetera, of the world. It's interesting. I did a one of my shows a few months ago on Boom Radio was I delved into the, the Sunset Strip and some of the forgotten bands of the late 80s early 90s and some of them myself i didn't even remember what their big songs were and a lot of them didn't have huge songs but in listening to the music i was like oh that's actually pretty good and it's better than i remembered so even amongst those you know second and third rate bands there's there's something to be said about what they were trying to do Um, but i think it just got so diluted and that whole scene became as I said earlier, such a parody of itself that, and to your point, it had a lot to do with that 80s glam metal scene almost killing itself. It became so watered down and, you know, there were so many bands vying for the audience. And I think a lot of people just got you know, almost tired of it and got kind of sick of it. Well, when you think back to the early part of the 80s, and you think back of the year 1980, I mean, you've got classic albums like Back in Black and Women and Children First and so many great releases. I think Blizzard of Oz was also released in 82 as well. And yep. it was it was very underground. Like, not a lot of kids were into it. I mean, you had Van Halen coming in from the 70s, obviously ACDC coming off the big album Highway to Hell and also the loss of Bon Scott. Ozzy broke away from 
from Black Sabbath, and this guitar phenom Randy Rhodes was with him. Black Sabbath started with Deal. You had the, the beginnings of Iron Maiden, which was a result of the new wave of British heavy metal. So there was a lot of music, great hard rock, and a lot of that stuff is considered heavy metal. You know, I, I know when people, you know, when I tell people, and we'll get into Def Leppard, but when I tell people Def Leppard was considered heavy metal, oh, you know, they're not heavy metal. I'm like, yes, they were. <laughs> they were considered heavy metal. And they can't, yeah. they can't wrap their head around that. But this was a, a very different time. You also had bands like Saxon that was part of the new wave of British heavy metal. And Y&T, which I always thought should have been way bigger than what they became. But there was like this... And even the early parts of Rat, if you heard that early EP of Rat, that sounds nothing like Out of the Cellar or Invasion of Your Privacy, which is really hard and, and, and really raw. You had Motley, raw, you know, yeah. Motley Crue starting with Too Fast for Love in 81 and 82, you know, which, which really took the glam look. They were really one of the first ones to, to start doing that. But you look at that period of music, and it's it's – very like I keep using the term raw and it's even got a little bit of innocence to it because they really weren't they really weren't ready for the big show yet right they were kind of still formulating their image and formulating their presentation and that was all going to come in the mid 80s as they thrive and they got bigger and bigger you also as a parallel to it you have the introduction to MTV and the rise of MTV and music videos, which was so important to the imagery of these bands that were coming up. Just huge. Absolutely huge. Yeah, the, the, as you mentioned earlier, too, the, the, I like your defining the 80s almost in that three parts or three kind of distinct eras. And as we get into talking about MTV, which I think had a lot to do with, I don't want to say killing off, the classic rock guys of the late seventies, early eighties, but you know, the REO speed wagons and journeys and sticks of the late seventies, early eighties didn't have that image for MTV. Right. As you said, they were, you know, much more uh, blue jeans and white t-shirts and MTV came along and really cultivated and allowed all those bands like the early ones, like rat, especially and Motley Crue, as you said, to develop an image to go along with the music. And I remember the first time that we didn't have MTV in Canada in the eighties. We had much music, um, which launched in 1984. And that was my introduction to a ton of eighties, hard rock and metal bands, because similar to MTV, you know, much music would play these new bands that I'd never heard of Motley Crue, Rat, et cetera, and their new videos. And, you know, to see the imagery on the screen of the, the excess and the hair and the, just the rock star look was something that, you know, took my love of rock music to another level entirely. <laughs> so the visuals going along with that and, and really coming together to form this brand new scene you know, which then led into, I'm sure we'll talk about the Sunset Strip and where all that went. And then at the end of the decade with, you know, the rest of grunge, et cetera, coming in and, and things changing that way. The music video, I think, played a massive role in, you know, bringing rock music where it was in the late 70s, early 80s through the decade up until when things changed. 
you really touched on something that is important. And as, as, as we talk about MTV being an important force in the popularity of 80s rock, and you have all these bands that are still trying to figure out their image and still trying to find themselves. And that's something that was different as well back in the day when a band was signed to a record label, that record label gave them time to develop, gave them time to find their sound. That doesn't happen anymore. And I think, in my opinion, 80s rock killed that before. I mean, everyone talks about it now, but, you know, you were, when you had these bands coming out and being on MTV as that outlet where radio was following MTV instead of vice versa, you know, you you found record labels trying to find the next Motley Crue, as you said, and if they didn't hit it right away, they really weren't going to do much with, with that band. I mean, there's a lot of forgotten bands throughout that decade that, for whatever reason, the record companies, well, we know the reason. They were trying to, you know, get every last dollar out of that genre and period of music that if you weren't immediately making them money, you were put on the back burner. And, and there's no band that probably is a better example, and that's Y&T. You know, Y&T started out in the late 70s as, you know, yesterday and today, came into the 80s with the albums Mean Streak and, and Black Tiger, and they were great bands. But for whatever reason, I know Dave Menachetti's talked about the record label really not supporting them. And then when they went to Geffen, they kind of got screwed around too as well. They have some great songs and some great musicianship and songwriting. They were just never able to get that backing by a record label to propel them to the next level. And that happened a lot back then. Yeah, they were a, they're definitely a band, I, I agree with you 100%, that should have been much bigger than they were. And they're interesting, and it's interesting watching their progression from their starting days up until, uh, you know, when they went to Geffen. And I, I remember buying their, I think it was '87, their album Contagious on cassette and loving that album. And by that point, the label had transformed them into, dare I say it again, hair, because they had the big hair now in the video. And for whatever reason, like you said, the label didn't take them to the next level. And to your point, there's so many bands, especially at the late end of the decade and into the nineties where the labels simply abandoned them. I remember watching, there's a great, I don't know if you've seen it, there's a great interview with uh, Janie Lane, the late great Janie Lane from Warrant talking exactly about the label. He, I guess Columbia records, the president's office, the secretary outside had a giant poster on the wall. They had a poster of uh, cherry pie, the album cover, you know, cause that was a huge record. Cherry pie did massive volume. And I'm watching this interview with Janny talking about going in to meet with the president of Columbia records when they were making the doggy dog album. And he went in, saw the secretary and sat down and lo and behold, the poster was gone. And it had been replaced, I think he said, by an Alice in Chains poster. And he was like, ooh, I guess we're falling down the priority list of the label. And it's exactly what happened, right? Like that doggy dog record from Warren in 92 is an absolutely killer 
hard rock album, probably their best in terms of, you know, overall quality. The songs are fantastic. He's a great songwriter. And the label just completely abandoned them, right? Like that, I think it might've gone gold, but again, to your point of, at that point, the labels were really cutting bait and saying, we're out and just let a band who had sold literally millions and millions of records for them go (laughs) in favor of something else. So yeah, it's crazy how that happened throughout the decade, but especially at the end. Yeah, you're right. And it was, I I have seen that interview and there's a moment of sadness where you see Janie reflecting on that moment. And you could tell that still bothered him. And, you know, I mean, I think they realized, and a lot of bands realized at that moment, that there was no loyalty in this business. It's all about who can make money and who is getting the money. And it's a moment, it's a very poignant moment. And I think it's in a Behind the Music episode about Warrant where you can see that. So if anyone's interested, yeah, check, right. yeah, if anyone's interested in checking that out, um, that's probably where you can find it. But when you look at that early part, and as it goes into the middle part of the 80s, the big moment, the they call it the heavy metal day, the day that heavy metal and hard rock put was put on the map, and that was in 1983 at the U.S. Festival, where it had Van Halen, Scorpions, Triumph, Ozzy, Judas Priest, Motley Crue, and Quiet Riot. And oh, yeah. that was a big moment for rock music, Big moment for the Sunset Strip because bands were developing after Van Halen. You had you had Motley Crue obviously releasing Too Fast for Love. Mickey Rat became Rat. Circus became Wasp. Quiet Riot was a big rival band for Van Halen in the early days of the backyard parties in Southern California. You had Striper, and I can't remember the, the original name for Striper right now, but you had a lot of acts raising the awareness of bands on the Sunset Strip, and it was becoming that scene that would really propel bands in the mid-'80s, bands like Poison and bands like Warrant and bands like all those other groups that were trying to find themselves, and there was no bigger album for those bands than Motley Crue, Theater of Pain, and the song Home Sweet Home, because after that, every album had to have a power ballad, and every band looked like the back cover of Theater of Pain when you look at that back cover. You are 100% right. And it's so crazy that, you know, even bands that, I can't remember who it was now, it might have been George Lynch from Dawkins that I watched an interview, and they were talking about, you know, the power ballad and that after Home Sweet Home, you're exactly right. It became an absolute, you had to have at least one on that album to go to radio to, because they wanted the female fans too, right? And the female fans loved the power ballad. The guys would tolerate it because the girls would then get into it. But I remember George Lynch saying, like, you know, the label basically forcing them to, you need to have a power ballad on the album. And sitting down to write a power ballad was such a chore for him to do. And it, it again became something that I think as the decade progressed, and we talk about, you know, what killed or at least tried to kill 80s rock was that there were so many power ballads out there and so many of them, quite honestly, were not great. (laughs) 
that it became, oh, here we go. Another band's releasing another power out ballad and, you know, it's going to go to number two or number one on the charts and it's all over MTV. Again, it became a little bit of a, a parody of itself. It did. It, it really, you, you know, when you think about why it became a parody, it's because of everybody had to have that certain look. Everybody had to have the certain yeah. song, you know, and bands were really not allowed to be themselves. And, you know, you, you think about a band like Cinderella. Cinderella gets put in, you know, the, the, the term hair band or glam band. And really, when you listen to their music, there's really nothing glam about it. It's very blues. Oh, they're such rock. a blues. Yeah, yeah. But you look at that that cover of Night Songs, and you're like, that is beyond. That is like genius label marketing at the time, right? When you've had Poison coming out of you know with Look with the Cat Tried. And the first time I saw that album cover in the record store, I was like, wow, who are these girls in this band called Poison? But you know. Cinderella came out with night songs and the, the label went after that look and exactly right. You know, that Cinderella is not a hair metal band in the least. They are a blues based rock band. Right. Right. And, and I, I wonder how many bands when they think back of that period, you know, will tell you maybe, maybe some will be honest, maybe some won't, but how they were forced to look a certain way and they had to, do things that they didn't want to do to get on MTV to get the big albums, and because when the girl, when the girls came in, meaning the female audience, that's when things blew up, right? That's when Bon Jovi blew up. That's when Def Leppard blew up. Yeah. I mean, Def Leppard was huge after Pyromania, but when you go into that third sector of the '80s and you talk about Hysteria and that album in itself, which was just gigantic and so many huge hit songs on that record. And you talk about Bon Jovi with New Jersey and, you know, later on, you know, Motley Crue, Dr. Feelgood, they, they were just giant, huge albums and they were playing stadiums and they were, they were so big. And it was because once the female audience gets a hold of something, they become very loyal fans. They want to buy everything. They're much different than a male audience, which is, you know, more about consuming the whole catalogs of the bands and, and learning, you know, the music. And it's just a different perspective. You know, girls right. will wear the T-shirts, you know, with the lead singer's face on it. Guys won't wear a shirt like that, you know, stuff like that. So it was very different. And I remember being in junior high. I graduated junior high in 89. And I remember it all just happening in front of me, um, you know, the Bon Jovi and the Poisons and the White Lions and the Def Leppards and all these bands that were great musicians. Maybe some of them weren't, but were, most of them were great musicians, but they had to look a certain way to get on MTV. And the only one that really stopped that was Guns N' Roses. Yes, absolutely. Guns, guns it's funny, so in our discussion about what killed 80s rock or what tried to kill it, I've had this, you know, a lot of debate about what it was exactly grunge. Was it, you know, the, the excess just stopped and people were tired of it. And I've had discussions actually about Guns N' Roses having a part in at least changing anyways what was going on at that time when they came out because you know you're right there they were 
so different. They they came in, Appetite for Destruction came out, and it was so raw. It was, you know, they weren't singing about, like, the bubblegum stuff, like girls and, you know, cars and et cetera. Um, they had great songs. They were kind of dirty looking. I mean, at the very beginning, I guess they had a bit of a glam look, but that quickly went away. And talking with people over the years, you know, we've had the debate about, you know, did, did Guns N' Roses start a little bit of a switch away from the true glam scene, if we're talking about just glam metal, did they have something to do with maybe at least starting a shift to a different type of rock music and maybe being the forebearer, dare I say, of, you know, the Soundgarden's, Pearl Jam's, Nirvana's style of music that would come in in 1991. Which I found, I think that's a really interesting angle to take, especially with the band like GNR. GNR still had that image of excess, though, right? They still had that, yes. you know, that Van Halen esque drinking whiskey on stage and just, you know, being that. I mean, they were a little bit, I think, more, um, I hate, I'm using that word again, more raw than a Van Halen. But in terms of the image, they were very similar, very similar to Motley Crue with that excess too as well. There was something going on though in Northern California and in New York in, and it started in the mid eighties and that was the thrash era. You know, it was very underground. It was, you know, you know, there was always these kids in the neighborhood that wore their Metallica shirts and it kind of stemmed from, Maiden, Priest, Deal fans into this thrash, Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer, you know, movement. And that was building. That started in the mid-80s. And that really wouldn't probably come to fruition until the late 80s when Metallica released one. Yeah, that, that, it's interesting that that genre of music. So I've never been a massive fan of thrash. And you are 100% right that there was those kids who I would see at high school walking around with the Metallica and the Megadeth, you know, crests on on the jean jacket and stuff. And there was almost a distinct camp of you had those guys, the thrash, the guys who really considered themselves heavy metal fans, right, who came out of that Priest Maiden um, early years against the guys probably more like me who went with the crew leopards and more of the glam metal scene and when as you said those metal band or the metallicas and the megadeths really peaked with the release of one which i remember seeing that video again back to the videos of the imagery of that video where the band isn't even in it and just the heaviness of that song and for me who as i said wasn't really a big thrash guy that was probably the first really heavy thrash song that I was like, whoa, this is really interesting and started to lead me down the path towards listening to a bit of that music, which, you know, did that take away any of my love of glam? No, but it also opened up my horizons to another complete genre that I didn't have interest in before, which probably did for a lot of people, I would guess, um, back in that era. So definitely, uh, to your point, a, a genre that came into effect and had much more impact in that late part of the 80s as, you know, the, the glam scene was starting to wither a little bit. 
you're right. You know, what that music represented was for the kids that didn't like, you know, the Crews and the Leopards and the Bon Jovis, it gave them a place, right? It gave them, it was an extension, like I mentioned, from Iron Maiden and Priest and Dio and Black Sabbath. You know, Black Sabbath really wasn't doing much in the 80s. They were going through singers, you know, every couple of albums or each album, you know. Um, and it was different, but it was that, it was building towards what be, what it became in the late 80s and 90s. And I think the reason why it became that was because Metallica was finally on MTV. You know, Metallica was never going to reach the stardom that, happened to them until they had a video because everybody was every kid every young teenager and kid in high school would watch MTV when they got home from from high school and you'd see the kids with the Metallica t-shirts at school but you really just didn't understand what the band was I mean you saw the shirts you saw the imagery and there was always some banter between you know the the glam rock guys and and the and the thrash guys, and you even saw bands like Priest and Maiden go into the glam. Even Ozzy, I mean, look at the Ultimate Sin. And, yeah, yeah. Uh, look at uh, shot uh, in the shot in the dark is a great example. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Look at Iron Maiden. Look at Stranger in the Strange Land with their hair and their outfits in those videos, like Wasted Years and Stranger in the Strange Land. Look at Priest with Turbo. You know, adding the synthesizer oh, but, in, into their song. Yeah, which is one of my favorite Priest albums, actually. That's the album that introduced me to Jesus Priest. Yeah, it's very Funny. underrated. You know, so bands that were resistant were going into that. And, and you know, when you're a fan of those bands and, you know, you're a fan of Judas Priest and, you know, you, you love Defenders of the Faith and you love Screaming for Vengeance and then they release Turbo. You're like, oh, my God, what is this? You know, <laughs> And then there's Metallica. You know, with Master of Puppets, Ride the Lightning before that, Kill Em All before that. You know, being on these underground rock radio stations, was, which was really the only outlet that you were able to listen to them because they weren't being played on MTV. So you had to listen late night to these rock stations to hear, you know, Metallica, Anthrax, Slayer, all that stuff. And it just kept building and building. And then when Metallica released one in, in 89 i think that was in support of the monsters of rock tour that they were a part of with van halen scorpions docking and kingdom come the other bands on the bill and what the other thing is is that tour when van halen fans and docking fans and scorpions fans are going to see you know that concert here's metallica and they're either loving it because it's something different or they're like intrigued like they're not sure if they like it or they absolutely love it. They fell in love with it. So back, you know, to what we were talking about, the late 80s was really transforming underground. Like the base of rock was changing and it hadn't filtered up yet. And it was coming. You mentioned Guns N' Roses, which was kind of, you know, the non-glam party band. And you had this underground scene with the thrash and you had, you know, thrash you know, metal fans kind of felt abandoned by Priest and abandoned by Maiden at that point, even Ozzy. So it was a big mix. And plus, all the, the glam was getting out of control, too. I mean, you know, we mentioned Poison earlier, and it was just, you know, there was Poison and there was Warren and there was, I mean, all these bands that were just like, and they all started to look the same, right? And they all started they all to sound the same. The same. All, yep, absolutely. Just became oversaturated, right? And I think that's what 
like anything that you have too much of, you know, sometimes you get tired of eating pizza five nights a week. You know, you get tired of watching the same show constantly. So as you said, so much of it was sounding the same, looking the same, you know, you flip on MTV or much music and you'd see literally, you know, 50 or 60 derivatives of the same thing. And people started to, I think, sour on it, got tired of it. And there was also, I think, a change in the overall, um, especially in America, the overall just social, the end of the Reagan era, right? And it was the decade of decadence. Everyone likes to talk about in the decade of excess. Money was being spent everywhere. And there was a new generation coming up that I think was, you know, tired of that. And the met the the guys like the Metallica fans and the Megadeth fans with that a little bit more of an angry, edgy type of feel to the music were basically saying, no, we aren't interested in this bubblegum, happy singing about chicks and rock and roll and parties. And we want something that's got more of an edge to it. We're angry. We're fed up. And, you know, thrash might've started to take them in that way. And then boom, I think probably, we started to head into what became known as grunge, right? Yeah, I don't know if grunge is as successful if Metallica doesn't become who they are. And yeah, I think I agree with you. Yeah, because, like I said, people were looking for another connection after they felt abandoned by some of the metal bands that were not going completely glam. I don't want anyone to think that I you know, believe Maiden and Priest and Ozzy were now all of a sudden these glam acts. They weren't, but they added that element into their music and their imagery. You know, the guitar they, synthesizers came in, right? And then <laughs> that's what the, they brought in the, the guitar synths on those albums. And yes. that's when all hell broke loose with the original fans. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, the thing that I, I look back, you know, we have the seventies and the majority of the seventies music was blues based kind of moody rock music. Um, the late 80s, I'm sorry, the late 70s into the early 80s kind of had those, they call them, you know, A&R bands, you know, like your Journeys and your Foreigners and yeah. your REO Speedwagons, which I enjoy Journey and Foreigner and a lot of those bands, but they did lack, they did lack a distinct image though. They didn't really have... You know, I mean, you could talk about Steve Perry, which everybody recognizes, of course, more for his voice than for his image. Talk about Lou Graham, more for his voice than his image. So yeah. I don't want to have this come off the wrong way, but when you have bands coming up in the early 80s like Motley Crue and Van Halen, Van Halen changed the game, as I mentioned in the Van, Eddie Van Halen tribute episode that I did. They changed the game. They made music fun. It was Southern California music. Everybody back then had visions of the beach and Hollywood and all this fun stuff going on in California it has a much different image now than it did, you know, 30 some <laughs> years ago, 40 years ago, but it was the place to go. Everybody wanted to go to California. Every kid wanted to go to Hollywood and, you know, it was fun music. I mean, you listen to Van Halen, it, it basically sounds like Southern California would sound if it had a band and it did called Van Halen and all that stuff came after that and it became fun 80s music was a lot about fun and about the imagery and you know some people unfortunately a lot of the musicians dove too deep into that fun some fans did too as well 
But when Metallica came back and, and was able to rise up from the underground scene and become what they became, and then all of a sudden grunge happened a few years later, it wasn't fun. It, the imagery wasn't about fun anymore. And what's interesting about that is it's never come back to that. You know how like a lot of music has cycles. Everything is cyclical. And it's never come back to that fun. And I don't know if it ever will, especially now when you know we have social movements where people are afraid of getting canceled and you got to watch what you say and watch what you do. I don't know if that excess is ever going to come back again. I would tend to agree with you that I don't think it will. Just, I mean, here's holding it hope that maybe it does, but I mean, there was a lot of that excess that, you know, that was really excessive that we don't need to come back for the sake of saving some people's lives. Sure, but, sure. Um, I, I, I would agree that, yes, that that probably is gone. Um, and so the talking about fun in the 80s, like that's a big part of, you know, my, that's when I, I'm a child of the 80s. So I grew up in that decade. My that my memories of that decade are all about you know fun. Obviously, as a you know early teen going to university in you know 1990, and the music that goes along with it, and the fact that I can tie in, which kind of saddens me. You know, I have an 11 year old daughter. I can tie in specific moments of my youth, specifically in the 80s, with music and specific albums and songs and I'm not sure if today's generation and my daughter growing up will have that same experience. I mean, yes, there will be songs that will be, you know, iconic for them and that they'll attach to having, you know, certain prominence and importance in their lives. But in terms of like relating back to, Oh my God, this song takes me exactly to this or this takes me exactly to that concert that I saw at, at this venue on this day. Um, I don't know if that'll ever, I, I think that might be gone. And that's, uh, to me, that's a sad thing. And that's partly why when I, I'm, you know, I'm such a fan of music in general. And as I mentioned off the top, you know, I'm enjoying a lot of new music, but I gravitate back always to the eighties as the decade of like my comfort zone and my, that's what I love. And that's where, you know, on a Friday night, if I'm feeling like I want to have some fun, I'll put on, you know, girls, 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 and, you know, listen to the album from start to finish, front to back in track order, just because I'm looking for that. I guess part of it too is revisiting my youth as I get older, but, you know, it's, and that's the one thing I found with, you know, talking about grunge specifically well, as well, my, I have a younger brother who's three years younger than me and he brought grunge into our house. I remember hearing smells like teen spirit and he got into Pearl jam and I, I remember like specifically saying to him, man, dude, that sucks. It's no fun. Like, I don't want to sit in my room and sit there in the dark and listen to this stuff like that people are singing about that just seems to suck the life out of everything. Now, I appreciate those bands now and I can listen to it. I'm still not a huge fan of that genre, but, you know, again, going back to, I think, coming out of the 80s and that decade of fun and excess leading into the 90s, there was just some change in the air. And my brother's generation, being three years younger, maybe that's what they were looking for. They wanted to be like, hey, I'm a little bit pissed off. I'm angry. You know, I don't want to listen to this fun stuff anymore. We need to we need to focus on something different. But um, yeah, that's, that's kind of 
where I had the disconnect between, you know, my music of the eighties and the fun rock to trying to understand what was going on as things transitioned to this different style. I had a difficult time with a different style. I remember liking Soundgarden and Alice in Chains because they still had that edgy metal type of music, you know? Um, But Nirvana, I never connected with. I still to this day, still to this day. I've tried. (laughs) Yeah. I can't get into it. Not happening. Yeah. It's just, to me, it, I know people are going to get upset when I say it. It just, there's nothing about Nirvana that appeals to me. Not the imagery, not the music, the songs. It just it feels incomplete. Um, right. Pearl Jam, I've learned to like as time has moved on, right? I think in the beginning, of course, I liked the album 10, but now appreciating their music, I think as I've gotten older, I really have become a fan of Pearl Jam. Um, same thing with Smashing Pumpkins, too, as well. But Nirvana, for, I, and I think it's partially due to the fact that I view that band as what killed the music I loved in my youth. I think that's why I've had such trouble connecting with them. Yeah. I think a lot of, I've talked to many, many people, um, you know, of our age and who grew up in the eighties that say the exact same thing that blame specifically, you know, I've got a buddy who is, who is a huge fan of um, hard rock metal thrash, all that. And he, to this day, (laughs) <laughs> will say that oh it was all Nirvana's fault they did it it was just them they killed the music that I love and I mean it's pretty crazy that you could say that one band or guy had an impact like that they certainly had a an impact just in terms of the genre but I don't think it was Nirvana themselves I mean the funny thing is that you know a lot of the 80s bands um, coming out of that era and once Nirvana came into play and you know smells like teen spirit became such a huge song so many of the bands that we loved decided that you know what we need to try and duplicate that like i'm a so i'm one of the biggest def leppard fans you'll meet and you probably know that and i've watched countless interviews with joe talking about you know the slang record for example and so me as a Def Leppard, massive Def Leppard fan. I love the Adrenalize. I saw them in the round on that tour. And I remember being devastated when Slang came out. And I was so excited. I waited in line. I bought it, put it on. And I was like, what in the hell is going on? What happened to my favorite band? And then watching these interviews with Joe talking about, like, we loved what was coming out of this grunge scene. And they decided basically to make an album, you know, I'm not going to call it Def Leppard's grunge album, but they certainly took those influences of the Nirvanas, et cetera, stripped it way down, got rid of all that big production, you know, recorded a lot of the songs live as a group in the studio um, as a result of, you know, the influence of bands like Nirvana having it. A lot of bands tried to make their version of it or duplicate it. I now love the Slang album, but I hated it <laughs> for many years. I think a lot of bands experienced that. I mean, you look at Motley Crue, Vince Neil leaving after the Dr. Feelgood tour. Yeah. And Prime example. John Karabi coming in. And you even look at, you know, bands. What was another? Um, you know, Poison had Richie Kotzen came in. It was a more serious album. 
it was a lot that was going on. A lot of bands were doing that. And that is such an example of, you know, record companies forcing the issue, but you know, rock mm-hmm. and roll fans like authenticity and they like organic and they don't like it when they hear something different from their favorite artists. So when all these bands tried to make some changes, it didn't go over well. And it was because it was such a polarizing moment in music. I understand Nirvana had a lot to do with moving away from the glam era and the party and the fun era of rock in the eighties. However, they were probably the beacon, the beacon for it. I would guess. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But what I'm Nirvana doesn't exist. If, Hit Parader Magazine, Circus Magazine didn't gravitate to these bands that looked pretty but couldn't play. And I don't want to mention any names because that's not what I want to do. But I remember as a young kid going to the grocery store with my mom, and then as she shopped, I went to the magazine section and just read all <laughs> on all these bands. You know, And that was the early 80s. And by the end of the 80s, early 90s, I remember thumbing through magazines when mag- magazines was still a thing. I remember like, because usually, before I say what I'm going to say, usually you'd hear the bands on the radio or MTV, and then you'd see them in the magazine. And then you'd be like, oh, wow, I just saw this video. I'm reading about, you know, Vince Neil, Tommy Lee, Stephen Piercy, Joe Elliott, whomever. Towards the end of the decade and early part of the 90s, I remember thumbing through magazines and seeing bands that I had not heard on the radio and had not seen on MTV. And these bands were being showcased in these magazines, and they all looked the same. And I remember even saying to myself how boring it's this this magazine is because I don't know any of these bands. I haven't heard any of these bands. And it wasn't like I could just go home and hop on a computer and hear these bands that they're showcasing, right? It wasn't That wasn't part right. of what was happening back then. And I think as you watched Headbangers Ball on Saturday nights, some of these bands started to get played on that, and it just it wasn't good. It really wasn't good, and it was very watered down. It was it was kind of like a cookie-cutter subdivision in a, in a neighborhood, you know? It all looked the same. It all smelled the same. It all sounded the same, and then Nirvana comes out. Obviously, it's got a lot of money behind them because of MTV, a lot of, you know, marketing behind them. And it was just different. And when you play something enough, people start to like it, you know. And you hear it the first time, you're like, I don't want to hear it. By the 10th, 11th, 12th time, you're like, oh, this is not bad. This is pretty good. And it was a huge movement, the grudge movement. But the grunge movement really only lasted a few years. It was not like a decade long, like 80s rock. No, not at all. That was It was, it was very short-lived, which... I mean, I think speaks to a few things, right? Like it, it didn't, it served a very specific period in time and a very certain niche that, you know, obviously was needed by a, obviously a group of people at that time that got tired of the usual, but um, it was one of those things that didn't have the staying power. Right. And as we talk about, you know, a lot of the music being cyclical and coming back, you know, I have to say I'm not aware of very many of those bands from that, you know, 91, 95, 96 timeframe that were considered grunge that are out there still 
either touring or making new music. I mean, I know there would be some, but when you compare them to the huge number of rock bands from the classic rock uh, 80s glam scene that are back out there that have you know, gone out and made new records, like so many of them are. There's some great new records. Well, I mean, the big ones, obviously, you know, ACDC's been around and stayed around forever, but, you know, they've got a new album coming out, but you've had so many bands who have reunited from that era and have put out new music. Um, you talked about, um, you know, that Robert Mason um, was a great guy to talk to, but Warren's had new music out in the last couple of years. So, Yes, there's a, a fan base that's always been there for the 80s rock music that has never left and has stuck with it. And I guess there's enough of us out there that these bands have you know, decided to continue on. But I think in terms of you know, that music continuing and new hard rock music being made, there is that generation of kids like my daughter, who is 11, who loves Kiss, who loves Def Leppard, you know, round and round comes on the radio and she knows the lyrics. There's that group of fans coming up that have grown up listening to that music in their homes because of their parents. I don't think it's the same thing with the grunge music. I don't think that's happened. That may just be me, but... Yeah, I I think a lot of it is dependent on the fact that, you know, three major voices during that period are no longer with us, whether it's Scott Weiland or yeah, Chris Cornell or, or, or Kurt Cobain. And, you know, Eddie Vedder is, you know, and you could probably put Billy Corgan in that uh, conversation as well with Smashing Pumpkins. But I think a lot of the resurgence with these bands from that period, from the 80s, is a lot of it has to do with the dirt motley crew you know a lot of people are are coming back to that stuff and and, and seeing these bands and you know small clubs and mid-level theaters like you know i saw la guns last april april of 2019 and it was you know it was a small theater probably fit about three to four hundred people but it was packed it was packed i go i went to you know i, I had tickets for winger um before the pandemic hit and it was virtually almost sold out. I think, you know, with the tour with Motley Crue and Def Leppard, um, and you can you know include Poison in that too as well, uh, you know, there's a resurgence. There's a reason why people want to go see this music. And I think when you look at society right now, it really drags you down, you know, even before the pandemic. You know, everything, <laughs> yeah. is, so, everything is so polarizing. People lose friends if they have a different view. You know, p- politics. Politics was never as you know on the level it is now like when i was growing up i don't remember my parents talking with people over dinner or in the backyard arguing with each other politics never came up very rarely you know when when i was growing up and now it's like it's everywhere and it just it brings you down and then you got a tour like motley Crue and 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 def leppard bringing you know fun back to people's lives and i think that's attractive (laughs) to people you know Oh, absolutely. And that's part of the reason why, again, that I gravitate towards, well, it's not gravitate. I still am such a huge fan of this music is because I love going seeing these guys play. And especially, as you said, with, um, you know, the bands, well, you know, some of the 
I mean, Def Leppard and Motley Crue doing the stadium tour is one thing, but seeing bands in smaller venues when back in the eighties, they would have, you never would have had the opportunity to see, you know, an LA guns or a winger in a 400 seat theater or bar. And to be able to do it now is so much fun. Like you're so close, you know, in a lot of the cases, so many of these guys are so happy to stick around after the show and say hi and spend some time chatting with the fans, which that makes me want to go to even more. Like I, I typically will see, you know, 12 to 15 shows a year. And uh, that's one of the things I really look forward to is catching some of these bands um, playing in some of the smaller venues because it's such a fun experience. And it does offer you in this day and age of, you know, the political garbage that we deal with and all the rest of it, a really positive thing to look forward to that you can enjoy and escape all that for, you know, three hours in a night. And one thing I really love about it is the chance to meet, you know, some of my favorite rock stars. I've been lucky enough to, you know, I did pay to meet the guys from Def Leppard, but I've, I've met and got to know Aaron very well. I've uh, met Nikki Six. Again, yeah, I saw briefly, that picture. But had yeah. A chance, yeah, I had a chance to talk with him. Um, it's it's really, really fun and cool to be able to have those experiences now. So I'm glad that these guys are out there doing this um, and still playing. And the one thing that I really notice is that they all just love to play. I mean, yes, some of them are making a boatload of money, but, you know, they love being out there in front of people on a stage, playing the music that they wrote and loved in the 80s, and in some cases, writing new stuff that's just fantastic. Um, It's just such a great time, I think, for, you know, this to all come full circle. And as you said earlier, maybe be on the verge of kind of emerging again. Yeah, I, I think I don't think it'll ever be what it was, but it's like you said, it's nice to see these bands in mid-level theaters and in in small clubs filling that stuff. Because I remember seeing some of these bands in the mid to late '90s, early part of the 2000s, where there was you know 15, 20 people at the club, and yeah, yeah, know, I, I think you know when you talk about a band like Winger, who is a very underrated band. And I know a lot of people like to make fun of them, but never understood that. Never understood it. I think a lot of it had to do with Beavis and Butthead, but it did. Right. Yeah, but <laughs> when you take the musicianship of those guys, oh I, my god! Any yes, band, stellar. any band that people are listening to, that you know, any fan that makes fun of Winger, they can outplay ninety nine percent of the bands that those people are fans of. Absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. I mean. You know, Reb Beach, top flight guitar player, Kip Winger, you know, oh underrated bass player and a great songwriter. Rod Morgenstein, I mean, was part of the Dixie Dregs. I mean, come yeah. on, you know, I mean, but they're just, they're loaded with talent. And I'm, I'm glad they're finally starting to be appreciated like they always should have. Um, yeah. I think they're a band that got sucked into that image, sucked into that MTV image. And instead of them being a little bit progressive, like I think they wanted to, you can hear all the progressive elements in those first couple albums. They were kind of oh forced. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like you think of Rainbow and the Rose or even headed for a heartbreak, which, you know, look at that, you know, the, that piece of, oh, you know, at the end of that song. I mean, that's 
that guitar, yeah. Yeah, that, that outro, that guitar outro, and then just the arrangement. You know, it sounds like what Kip later became, you know, it's a, a symphony and, and, and you know, making yeah. classical music. So, yeah, those guys are, are top-notch musicians, and it's a shame that them and a lot of others still get plagued by being a part of that era. But I think that's ending. I think that's coming to an end. And like I've always said before, and I know it gets people upset, there are a lot of male Bon Jovi fans who don't like to admit that they're Bon Jovi fans. There's a lot of male Def Leppard fans that do not like to admit they're Def Leppard fans, but they've all got two or three of their CDs and albums at home, and they just, you know, they don't want their man card pulled. Don't worry, you won't get it pulled. It's okay to say that you like those bands. Doesn't mean that you don't know what music, good music is. It's your opinion, and you don't have to be cool anymore. Yeah, exactly. Good point. <laughs> well, we will end on that. Once again, everybody, Chris Preston from My Rock and Roll Heaven. You can catch him at on Twitter at Rock These Tweets. Why don't you go ahead and plug some of the stuff you're doing and tell people where they can find you? Absolutely. So uh, I've been on Twitter for a while, as Jay said, My Rock and Roll Heaven at Rock These Tweets. I like to, uh, you know, post all kinds of music related stuff, historical stuff. Um, if you're looking for new music, um, you know, follow me there. I'm on Instagram, my rock and roll heaven, and, uh, also working with, uh, boom radio. Currently, uh, we're just transitioning our format a little bit, but you can find at dailyboomradio.com my, uh, previous shows, which, uh, I do a two hour kind of everything rock and roll. If you're into classic rock, glam, metal, you name it, 80s pop. I even play a bit of that on that show, so there's archives available there. And uh, looking forward to uh, seeing what the future holds over the next uh, few months as we move out of this uh, COVID situation and hopefully uh, slowly getting back to some, some live music. And uh, I'll, eventually I'd like to branch out into hopefully um, doing a little bit more podcast-type shows like this one. So... I appreciate you having me on, Jay, to talk rock and uh, look forward to potentially doing this again. Yeah, you're welcome back anytime, man. Anytime you want to come on and talk about I'm, something, you, I'm totally down with it. I appreciate it. That's awesome. And the last live show that I saw was a Canadian band last November, and I have a request for Oh, was it really? Oh, yes. I saw Big Wreck at a club in Chicago. Oh, what a great band. I love that band. So I got a request for your for your show to play a big All wreck right. song. So I've put a big wreck in there, but I've got they're, they're a great band, and Ian Thorne is one of the most talented oh. singers, songwriter, musicians, guitarists. Fantastic! He's a fantastic. Yeah, yeah. I'm, glad they, I'm glad they're they're down making some shows in the U.S. because they've been doing some stuff up here, um, like some drive-in shows during the the pandemic. So um, there are some bands, obviously, still trying to obviously you know make a go of getting out there and doing live stuff. I actually had the opportunity last month. I saw Coney Hatch. Oh. I was one of 25, one of 25 people in the venue, which was really cool. And they did a live stream. So that was my first show since February. That was the last live show I was at in February. But in September I was at this Coney Hatch show and they just killed it. it Love fantastic. Coney Hatch. Love Coney Hatch. Great band. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, awesome, Chris. Thanks again for doing this. Once again, everybody, that's Chris Preston from My Rock and Roll Heaven. I'm Jay Scott. This is The Hook Rocks, the ultimate rock community podcast. 
Stay safe, stay healthy, and we will talk again soon. I'm a soldier. I'm in the trenches, fighting every day to succeed. I can feel the blood rushing through It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.